Why don't you take a second? If you pray with me, Jesus, we love you because you first loved us. Help me as I preach today. Help me to say only what you want me to say. If there's something I shouldn't say, don't let me say it, God. For President Biden, give him wisdom. Protect and sustain his health, his mind, his mental faculties, Lord. Help him to make good and wise decisions, Jesus. For Lord, for our soldiers, sailors, airmen, marines, coast guardsmen, those serving at home and abroad, we pray for their safety, we pray for their protection, we pray for their salvation, because so many of those guys, they don't know you, Jesus. And Lord, for the persecuted church, Leah Sherabu, being held by Boko Haram because she's a Christian, Pastor Yusuf imprisoned in Iran because he's a Christian, and Pastor Wang and John imprisoned in China because they're Christians. Help them. And for the untold thousands, Lord, in Afghanistan, in Eritrea, in the South Sudan, in North Korea, just to name a few of these hardest places. Lord, help us not to forget about them. To honor you and your word, as the author of Hebrews tells us, to remember those who are in chains, as if in chains with them. Help them, Jesus. And help me today. Holy Spirit, I pray for a fresh filling. If there's anything, Lord, that... God, if there's anything you don't want me to say, please don't let me say it. And if there's something that I need to say that I have no intention of saying, I haven't even prepped for, then give me a word today. Lord, I pray for those of us here right now that you'd free us from, from whatever anxiety or distractions that are competing for our attention. That we would just hear from you, God. Help us to hear from you. We pray this in your name. Amen. So we are in the book of Genesis. We're in Genesis chapter 47, verse 13. This is part 42. Part 42. This is the 42nd sermon I preached in Genesis because we love expository preaching because it's awesome. And if you're here and you've never heard of expository preaching, that's okay. That's just where you go verse by verse, chapter by chapter, through the story, like you would any other book, like you would probably a TV show or a movie that you've never seen before, just right through it. So we are in Genesis chapter 47. We're starting in verse 13. Let me get you caught up to speed if you're here for the first time. A guy named Joseph was betrayed by his brothers, sold into slavery. His brothers think he's dead. God had other plans for him. God has risen him from the prison to the palace. He is now the number two guy in Egypt. And there's a famine in the land. His brothers come looking for food. He reveals himself. He's like, guys, it's me. It's Joseph. Go home. Get dad. Get the family. I'll take care of you guys. I'll give you guys, you know, great real estate. I'll hook you up with jobs. Last week we saw dad comes down. He sees Joseph. It's his beautiful reunion. And now, now we enter in to the lean years, the famine years, and things are going to get really, really difficult for the people. And it says this, chapter 47, verse 13. Now there was no food in all the land, for the famine was very severe, so that the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan languished by reason of the famine. It's hard to overstate just how difficult this is. I mean, you think things have been tough the last few years with COVID and ongoing inflation? This is way harder. People are dying. You probably, my guess, most of you have never missed a meal in your life. 
Okay? This is the reality for many of the people in this world right now. They're dying. They're dying. And Joseph, verse 14, he gathered up all the money that was found in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan in exchange for the grain that they bought. And Joseph brought the money into Pharaoh's house. Uh, here's the bottom line up front. Joseph is the guy who is wheeling and dealing in this story. This is a story about stewardship, generosity. Stewardship, kindness, and generosity. Joseph's the guy who holds responsibility for huge sums of money that's being exchanged during this season. And it says this in verse 15, And when the money was all spent in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan, and all the Egyptians came to Joseph and said, Give us food. Why should we die before your eyes? For our money's gone. And Joseph answered, Give your livestock and I will give you food in exchange for your livestock if your money is gone. In verses 15 and 16, things have taken a, a drastic turn for the worse. Things are now so bad, there's no more money. There's no money. Imagine if, like, every single one of us, you had zero dollars in your wallet. You had zero dollars in your bank account. Some of you are like, that's how my life is right now. I got it. I remember the, the broke college, college days. I remember that. No, but, but that's, that's reality. Like, there, there's no money to be exchanged. No money. Things have been so bad for so long, and now they're left with no other recourse but to bring their animals to be traded. They're, they're bringing their animals to exchange for food. That's the situation. It'd be like if you showed up to Walmart tonight. Okay, you and your roommates, you go to Walmart to pick up some stuff that you probably don't need at midnight. And when you hand the cashier money, instead of money, you hand them the keys to your car so that you can buy a loaf of bread and some cereal and eggs. That's what they're dealing with. That's how difficult the situation is right now. That's what's happening. And it says in verse 17, so they brought their livestock to Joseph, and Joseph gave them food in exchange for the horses. That's a key word. The flocks, the herds, and the donkeys, he supplied them with food, in exchange for all their livestock that year. And when that year was ended, they came to him the following year, and they said to him, We will not hide from my Lord that our money is all spent. The herds of livestock are my Lord's. There is nothing left in the sight of my Lord but our bodies and our land. There is this reference to horses here, and this is especially revealing. Since horses were very valuable asset for the Egyptians. They were associated with the Egyptian aristocracy. The point is, this famine has hit everyone. Even the wealthy people are being bled dry. That's how difficult it is. And now people are coming to Joseph and they're saying, Joseph, all, all my cards are out on the table right now. Here are my bank statements. You can see, like, I don't, I don't have anything left other than, like, ourselves and, like, our land. And it's usually at this point of the story that many people like to throw stones at Joseph. And they'll paint this picture of this guy who's enriching Pharaoh's treasury at the people's expense. And, and many liberal commentators and critics will argue that Joseph is this cruel, capitalistic type CEO who doesn't care about people, who only cares about money. And here's what I'll point out at this place in the story. And that is that when it comes to thinking about wealth, 
for most people, they, they usually view it in, in one of two ways. Simply put, you've got wealthy people and non-wealthy people. And, and yes, someone's going to say, well, there's the middle class. Sure, okay, for the sake of this story, you got wealthy, got non-wealthy. And typically, a common view of the wealthy people, of the rich people, is that they're evil and that they're wicked. And they've made their money because of their white privilege. And they've made it off the backs of the working class. This is usually the perspective of the, the woke, Leninist, Marxist, Bernie Sander type of individual. Which I always think is ironic since Bernie owns three houses. He's not struggling financially. But that's typically one of the common views out there. And then there's this other perspective, right? And that is the one that looks down upon the poor. They're just apathetic and lazy. They're stupid and foolish. This is the person whose first instinct typically is, get a job! I'm sure none of you have ever had that reaction to seeing a panhandler. Right? This is, this is the reaction. It's not my responsibility. You're just entitled. You took out the college debt. I'm not paying for it. You're an entitled little brat. Those are typically two common perspectives. Okay? Common perspectives. But I would submit to you that when it comes to rich and poor, there is, a, there is another category that we need to recognize, not just to be fair when it comes to the evaluation of the text and Joseph's character, but in order to think biblically as it holds to practical application for our present day. And the way that one does this is to understand that rich and poor come in two forms. Honorable and dishonorable. Or to state it another way, godly and ungodly, righteous and, and unrighteous. In other words, it's possible to be a Bernie Sanders supporter, I can't believe I'm about to say this, and in certain instances be absolutely right. Just like it's possible to be the gun-toting, Bible-reading, registered Republican and to be wrong in some of these instances. And, and all you have to do is look at the biblical examples of rich and poor, righteous and unrighteous, to understand this is true. I mean, for example, in the Bible, you think of any Bible characters that are rich and honorable? The Bible has several characters who are rich and honorable, who are characterized by kindness and generosity with their money, who love God and serve God. Father Abraham, or Boaz, or Joseph of Arimathea, or Lydia from Thyatira. The truth is such a person does exist. And if that's true... The reality is the inverse must be as well. We think of Herod the Great. He used his wealth, he used his power to kill babies. To kill little kids. To kill toddlers. Matthew chapter 2. Proverbs talks about this type of person. Proverbs talks about wealthy people who lie and steal and they don't keep their promises. So, so yes, there is good rich people and bad rich people. Honorable, wealthy people and dishonorable, wealthy people. Godly, rich people and ungodly. And if that's true for the wealthy, I submit to you, it's also true for the poor. Can you think of people who are poor and honorable in the Bible? I don't know. I'll go with Jesus. He seems like a good one to roll with. Jesus. The Macedonian Christians. Remember those guys? Macedonian Christians, they gave, Paul says, not out of their wealth. They gave out of their poverty. They were like a bunch of broke college students who were still generous when the offering plate rolled around. And then, of course, you have the woman who gives the two copper pennies. So, yes, there are people in the Bible who are godly and poor. But there's also 
There's people who in the Bible who are poor and dishonorable. And one of the reasons is because of the bad choices, their irresponsibility. They blow all their money. They're very foolish. Man, I've got family members right now that come to mind. Right? The type of person, they don't work hard. They accumulate tons of consumer debt. They live way above their means. They're the type of person that Proverbs characterizes as the sluggard, the fool, the unwise, the lazy, the apathetic. They don't provide for their family. Now, here's what's interesting about this story. Joseph is front and center, and he's found himself in both of these camps at different points in his life. He's been in each camp category of rich and poor at different points in his life. And I would argue that at each point his life was characterized by godliness. And so here in verses 17 and 18, people, they, they start to throw stones at Joseph because he's, he's clearly in the, the not poor category. But there's a few things that, that we have to acknowledge when it comes to examining his character. And that is for starters, without Joseph, everyone dies. I mean, think about that for a moment. Subtract Joseph from the equation, no one survives. And I feel like at this point, the discussion, it could just sort of end. But, but there's the fact. Without him, everyone's dead. No one gets to complain. But if we, if we press past that point to answer the critic who say, well, he's just exploiting the poor. Is he? Is Joseph enriching himself at the expense of the poor? Think about this before you answer. In verse 18, make sure we have verse 18 on the screen. In verse 18, does Joseph go to the poor or do the poor go to him? And when that year ended, that's where verse 18 starts, they came to him. The poor go to him for help. The poor not only go to him for help, but look what verse 19 says. Let's, let's read it right now. Verse 19. They say, Joseph, why should we die before your eyes, both we and our land? Buy us and our land for food, and we with our land will be servants to Pharaoh and give a seed that we may live and not die, and that the land may not be desolate. See, not only do the people come to Joseph, it's the people who present the offer to Joseph. The people are the ones who negotiate. Joseph simply accepts their proposal. This would be like if someone comes to you and they say, hey, I'd like to buy your car. I want to buy your car. I'll give you this much money. You say, okay. You accept their money. You hand them over the keys. You sign over the title. And then later on that day, someone comes and they say, how dare you? How dare you take advantage of that person who voluntarily came to you, who voluntarily offered a large sum of money, and then accepted their voluntarily offer? How dare you do that? Because that's exactly what Joseph's doing in this story. Not to mention that Joseph gives them a better deal than their alternative, which is death. Joseph is good, and Joseph is kind, and Joseph is, is generous to the people. See, the concern shouldn't be if you're rich or poor. The goal should be, are you like Joseph, regardless of your net worth? Are you righteous? Are you honorable? Or are you ungodly and selfish and dishonest and dishonorable? That's the question. The question is, are you like Joseph? And by extension, are you like Christ? That's the question you need to ask yourself. And how you handle and how you steward the money that you have. Well, verse 20 says this. It says, So Joseph 
bought all the land of Egypt for Pharaoh. For all the Egyptians sold their fields because the famine was severe on them. The land became Pharaoh's. And as for the people, he made servants of them from one end of Egypt to the other. Only the land of the priest he did not buy. For the priests had a fixed allowance from Pharaoh and lived on the allowance that Pharaoh gave them. Therefore, they did not sell their land. So here in verses 20 and 22, there's this footnote in reference to the priest, the Egyptian priest. And we learn that the priests in this story, that they are immune to what is occurring because they're automatically provided for through government subsidies. And the question becomes, well, how are we to understand their significance and relevance? And the reality is these pagan priests here, they are very spiritual. They're very spiritual. But they're a failure. They couldn't save Pharaoh. And they couldn't save Egypt. They're spiritual, but that's it. They're a failure. And and here's my point. You can be very spiritual and and very wrong. Real-life illustration. My buddy, we'll call him Seth, because that happens to be his name. Thanks for laughing, guys. My buddy Seth, former LCC guy, uh, Seth and Allie, they live in Texas, you guys know him. Um, Seth sends me a text this week. He's like, hey, have you heard of this local church in Lynchburg? I say, no, I've never heard of this local church in Lynchburg. He's like, okay. I'm like, why are you asking? He's like, one of my LU classmates, she, don't forget that, she leads worship at this church. And I was like, okay. And I said, are you going to tell me that this church is... LGBTQIA plus affirming? Is that where you're going? He's like, well, it would have to be since she is engaged to another woman leading worship at this church. These pagan priests are a failure. They aren't real priests, just like many churches out there aren't real churches. That's the point. You can be very spiritual. You can be so spiritual and living your truth, to quote any Hollywood celebrity, and still be very wrong. That's the reality, at the exact same time. And so it says in verse 23, Then Joseph said to the people, Behold, I have this day bought you and your land for Pharaoh. Now here is seed for you, and you shall sow the land. And at the harvest you shall give a fifth. That's 20%. For those of you who struggle with math, a fifth, 20%. (laughs) There's always some honest people laughing. And four-fifths, that's 80%, shall be your own as seed for the field and as food for yourselves and your household and as food for your little ones. So here's Joseph, and what does he do? He buys all the real estate. Not some of the real estate, he buys all of it. Imagine owning all of Lynchburg or Virginia. In this case, the entire country. He buys it up, all of it. But what complicates this passage and is used just as more stones to throw, is that Joseph purchased people. And obviously, read in a modern-day context, this passage might seem to support this positive idea of Joseph making these people slaves. And to be purely objective, in a sense, he does. The question is, in what sense? See, many of you guys have jobs. Many of you guys have jobs. How many of you guys have ever had a job in your life? So like, probably most of you, not a trick question, you're like, he's trying to trick us, isn't he? I'm not raising my hand at all. That's okay. No worries. 
But, but I assume that you guys have had jobs before, and if someone has negotiated your pay, whether they're paying you 10, 15, 20, whatever, whatever the amount is, when you actually get your paycheck, is the full amount there? No, it's, it's not. You know that. Not a trick question. The full amount is not there whatsoever. Why? Because there's usually state income tax, depending on what state you live in. If not, there's state sales tax because they'll capture it when you spend the money. And if there's not, there most assuredly is federal income tax. And then there's federal payroll tax. And then there's Social Security. And then there's capital gains. And then there's property tax. And then there's whatever tax. Okay, I left a few off the list, and on and on. So even in our modern day context, we know we don't get to keep everything we make. So let's think about Joseph. He's a former slave. And people will point out he's making slaves right now. But let's be clear, are these slaves getting paid? They are. Joseph tells them they can keep everything they make from their earnings except 20%. 20% you got to give to Pharaoh. Imagine if you could keep 80% of what you make today when you work. I don't know about you. Yeah, thumbs up. I'd be like, I'll take that deal, Joseph. Sign me up. Sign me up right now. 80%? Done. No, no, no need to negotiate. I'll take that deal, right? My, my point is, Joseph is very kind to these people during this time. He doesn't have to let them keep anything, and yet he lets them keep 80% of what they make. And to be clear, that's more generous than your government is to you. Okay? And they're on the verge of death. Imagine if we were on the verge of death. Joseph's given a very reasonable deal. I mean, Joseph holds all the cards right now. And Joseph's super kind to them, guys. He's super kind to them. And when we consider, just, just for a second, when you consider how kind God is to us, I think it's just even more unimaginable. I mean, think about somebody who might be a new Christian. Let's say they've never grown up in church. Let's say they've, they've never, they don't know anything about, like, Bible stuff. And you explain to them that Jesus lived the life you couldn't live, and he died the death you should have died, and he paid the price you couldn't afford to pay, and, and everything is from God. James tells us every good gift comes from the Father. And that, that new young man or woman who, who's just become a Christian, they're like, so, so everything I have is God, yes. Every relationship, yes, every gift, whether it's a relationship, whether it's a, a dollar or cent in your bank account, everything belongs to God. And you said, so out of curiosity, if God were asked you to give to him, how much do you think you should give? I would imagine if they were being honest, they would say, well, if God owns everything, we should probably give everything. Like that would be a very truthful answer. I think God would be totally right to say, your entire paycheck, all 100%, sign it over to me right now. It would be totally fair. And yet, what's amazing is, is that he doesn't. What's amazing is, when you explain what we should give, and a lot of people say 10%, and of course, if you look in the Old Testament, the Jews actually gave well over 25%. New Testament is very clear. What are we to give? Sacrificially. So how much? Cheerfully. The number? With a glad heart. I'm confused. That's okay. Because you have a good God. He loves you. Right? People say, so to 10%? I'm like, that's, that's a fine place to start if you want to do that. But the Bible's really clear. He wants us to give with a cheerful heart. He wants us to give sacrificially. He wants us to give with gladness, not begrudgingly. See, Joseph's kindness to this dying people is a reflection of God's kindness to us every day. 
He could easily require us to give every cent, but he doesn't. Like Joseph, God is so good and he's so kind and he's so benevolent to us and so often his kindness in our life goes unnoticed or if it does get noticed, it's quickly forgotten. See, at the heart of this story is a theology of work and a theology of stewardship. At the heart of this story is that. And work is becoming more of a foreign idea through today's cultural Marxist lens, which says it, it's, it's oppressive to make someone work or to require someone to come into work. I mean, guys, this, this isn't oppressive what Joseph's doing. It's actually quite fair and equitable. It is. And if you don't believe me, I mean, all you have to do is like read the very next verse. So let's do that. And they said... Joseph, you have saved our lives. May it please my Lord, we will be servants to Pharaoh. So Joseph made it a statue concerning the land of Egypt, and it stands to this day that Pharaoh should have the fifth. The land of the priest alone did not become Pharaoh's. Is Joseph being cruel and oppressive? Because if he is, you better have an explanation for verse 25 for the people's response. They appreciate Joseph. They're thankful for Joseph. Uh, I mean, this is a joyous celebration in verse 25 on the part of the people because they realize if it wasn't for Joseph, they'd be dead. If it wasn't for this guy, they'd be dead. And yet he goes way beyond saving their lives. He's, he's good to them. See, this, this, I, this story illustrates this major idea in the text of stewardship and generosity. And the truth is, Stewardship of God's people is something very important that you need to learn and be doing. You hear that? And this is why when I tell people when it comes to giving, a common phrase that I hear thrown around is, well, you don't have to give your money, you can just give your time or your talents. I know I'm going to step on some toes, so I'll do it very delicately. That's just not right to say, well, you don't have to give your money, you can just give your time or your talents. It's not. And the reason is that doesn't teach you how to actually steward your finances. You should be using your time and your talents. You should be serving in a local church, committed to a local church, making disciples in a local church. You should be doing that. But, but serving and using your time and your talents, that's not an excuse or a justification not to give. It's not. Like there's no Bible verse that says, if you're a junior and you take at least 18 credits full-time, you don't have to give any money. But, but we do that, and it could be any issue, but we have a tendency to kind of create situations that are not presented in the text at all. Some of you are like, Joe, you're saying really hard things. I know, I'm just trying to be faithful to the text, that's all. So you say, okay, okay, what am I supposed to do? What am I supposed to do if I'm a broke college student? You're saying it's not enough to give my time and my talents? I should give my money too? You should. Stewardship is about wealth and money. But how do I do that if I don't have any? You better have a good answer for me, Joe. This is my best answer. You pray. You, you pray. You say, Jesus, Lord, you know my heart right now. You know I'm in a season of life. and I'm a full-time student, and I wish I could give, but I don't even have money coming in, Lord. But Lord... When money should enter my bank account, whether it's through a job or something unexpected, right now, Lord, I want you to, to show me what it is I should give. 
when my financial circumstances change. That's what you do. You pray. You ask Jesus to help you, to prepare your heart right now in this season of famine for what he wants you to give when finances do come in, because that's stewardship. And for the person you say, you know what, I struggle just giving it all. I can relate to that. 100%. You guys, a lot of you guys know my story. I didn't make any money. I pastored here full time with a master's of divinity for three years and a month. Didn't make a single penny. And at the time, I was like, well, I'm not going to give anything to the church because I'm giving technically 100%. And my wife, Diana, really challenged me. She's like, I think we should, we should give at least 10% of what we have. She's working at a little Starbucks on campus in the bookstore at the time. I've got like $500 a month drill, drill pay, and that's it. I'm trying to take care of a wife. It's not enough money. The math doesn't add up. And I said, okay. And it was so hard. And I'm praying, God, like, my attitude's not right. I don't want to give. I'm scared. And, and my heart is not one that's inclined to give right now. And you've got you to work on my heart, Jesus. You've got to give me a generous heart. I want you to make me a cheerful giver because I'm not cheerful right now when it comes to this. That's what you do. That's what you do, church, that we might be the sort of people that are characterized by generosity and kindness and that principle flows from the gospel. It flows out of the goodness of God who just like Joseph, he saves his people and just like Joseph, he's kind and benevolent even to people who are unbelievers, even to people who are just ordinary folks who don't know him as the scriptures tell us. He makes it rain on the righteous and on the wicked. Well, verse 27 tells us this. Thus Israel settled in the land of Egypt, in the land of Goshen, and they gained possessions in it and were fruitful and multiplied greatly. God blessed them. And Jacob, and it's Joseph's pops, he lived in the land of Egypt 17 years. So the days of Jacob, the years of his life were 147 years. And when the time drew near that Israel must die, he called his son Joseph and said to him, If now I have found favor in your sight, Joseph, put your hand under my thigh and promise to deal kindly and truly with me. Back in the day in the ancient Near East, if you wanted to make a, a, a solemn promise or pledge, what you would do is you take your hand and you put it underneath another guy's thigh. Specifically, you put it actually right underneath and behind, next to his reproductive organs. Today, we just do a handshake. I prefer that, but that's what they would do back then. It's true. That's straight up Bible. Not trying to be graphic. That's just what it is. And so he says, Do not bury me in Egypt, but let me lie with my fathers, Joseph. Carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burying place. And he answered, I will do as you have said. And he said, Swear to me. And he swore to him. Then Israel, that is Jacob, bowed himself upon the head of his bed. If you remember when Joseph was sold into slavery by his brothers, he was 17 years of age. You see how good God is? He gives him 17 years now after he's reunited with his dad. Talk about making up for lost time. God is so good. And we forget that a lot. And this theme of blessing and stewardship, just, it's just sprinkled all over the text today. See, throughout Joseph's life, so much of his life is just spent dealing with uh, family and financial matters, not altogether unlike how people today spend their time. And the truth is, guys, when it comes to being a good steward of what God has given you, you need to remember that the goal is, is not rich or poor. The goal 
is honorable. The goal is to be a righteous person. And should God bless you? And should God increase your income? What you need to remember, that doesn't mean you have to automatically increase your spending or your lifestyle. In fact, I would argue that God doesn't bless his people just so you can flex your wealth, but rather to be a blessing to others. Not to mention, if God should give you a season of plenty, it's really not a bad idea when it comes to this idea of stewardship to put some acorns in the winter, in storage for the winter. But, but what does the story tell us about God? Think about what the story tells about God. One thing is for certain, this story serves as a reminder and demonstration of how God can work through corrupt governments, including yours. You think Egypt was just this wonderful place? He can work through corrupt governments. That's what we see in the story. How God can work through difficult interpersonal relationships in which there are people who've been lying about you, who've been gossiping about you, who've been saying terrible things about you. God can work through that. I mean, just look at Joseph's life. He's not a godless, convicted rapist. He's an innocent man who loves God. God sees all that corruption. He sees all that filthy, accusatory talk that is aimed at his people. See, this story should give us hope when we look at, say, world leaders and the current events to remember God's at work, church. He's at work right now. You're like, but, but they control the, that branch of government and that person's the elected leader and I don't like them and they're making terrible decisions. You have a king on a throne who's calling the shots, church. <laughs> He's calling the shots. If there is a leader you like and they're in elected office, they're there for one reason. Yeah, I know, because they got this percentage of votes. No, God put them there according to Daniel chapter 2. And when it's time, God will remove them from that position. Joseph lives in a corrupt time. People accuse and have lied and said terrible things about Joseph. See, in Joseph, we have a righteous man whom God has blessed. And in God, we have a totally sovereign king who reigns over corrupt governments like Egypt, like ours, to bless his people and work for their good despite hostilities toward them. Oh, that should be of great encouragement to you. When you face persecution, or when people call you names because you believe what the Bible says, and be encouraged, church. As the team comes, I want to pray for us. Jesus, we love you. Lord, what a wonderful encouragement this story is um, to see your kindness and benevolence reflected in the life of Joseph. Joseph's kindness to the people. Lord, it's just a reminder of how unworthy we are. We don't deserve anything, God. We don't deserve anything. You're so kind. You're so gracious. And we abuse that grace all week long, Lord. And so, Lord, even right now, corporately, Lord, I would ask that you would forgive us for our sins, sins that we committed to this morning or last night that no one knows about. I pray, Lord, that we would not trample on your grace. I pray that we would not trample on your kindness and your benevolence. But Lord, just as you were kind and blessed Joseph, I pray that in both word and deed, we would be that reflection to a lost and dying world. 
In your name we pray, amen.